Welcome to the Pretty Intense Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, we have a great guest today, but first, if you could please hit the subscribe button, I would really appreciate that. And hit the thumbs up and the bell for notifications. Okay, on to our guest. Today is Dr. Nicole LaPera. I actually had Nicole on about four years ago, uh, back when my podcast first started. And she was a fantastic guest. She goes by the holistic psychologist on social. She has an incredible following on Instagram and across other platforms. And she just does a really good job of educating people about like the, the dynamics that exist in our reality, in our life. And like, what makes us sad and what makes us feel not appreciated and just trying to understand ourselves. So she has a book coming out. This is her third book. This one is How to Be the Love You Seek. Honestly, I think it's so good that there's more people writing about this sort of more autonomous self-reflection on how to control your destiny. Perception plays a humongous role in our reality. The difference between fear and excitement is a real fine line that could maybe even just be perception. Like you could go bungee jumping and be scared to death or you could be super excited. I think that it's great that people are writing about this because we have so much power within us to change the way we experience our everyday life based on how we feel about ourselves. And we talked about how childhood plays such a big role in sort of programming us and the way that we go into our adulthood and our and our romantic relationships. She's in a very interesting, different relationship. She's in a thruple, which is there's three girls, and she talks openly about that. So great episode. I hope that you'll tune in and listen all the way to the end, as well as get her book, How to Be the Love That You Seek. Enjoy with Nicole. All great athletes have one thing in common. They take care of their bodies. It's something that we do from a young age, whether we work out, the food that we eat, how we prepare our mind. This is all part of becoming a great athlete. And one thing that I do every single morning is I drink AG1. I do it before I have coffee. I do it before I eat any food. I really feel like for me, it's helped my gut health. It's made my stomach just feel like less bloated and more calm throughout the day. It handles all foods so much better. I'm putting like 75 high quality ingredients into my body first thing in the day, which makes a huge difference. Even if I'm traveling, I use the travel packs. I was in Europe for six weeks. Every single day, I put AG1 into my body. So if a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, then AG1 is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash pretty intense. That's drinkag1.com slash pretty intense. Check it out. Jen and I were talking about before we started, she was like, it's been four years since you talked to Nicole. And I was like, that was like when the podcast started. That was, that was, and she's like, and I was like, had it even started yet? And it was in the fall. So like we launched in August of 19. So that's how long it's been since like, I, I think know. it was October-ish maybe or something And like both that. you and I were living in. LA yeah, at that exactly. time. And now we've migrated over here. And now we're both in Arizona. So tell me what's happened in the last four years. Oh, not much. <laughs> you've written like three books or something. Like how many books have you come out with now? Yeah. I think we spoke around the first book, how to do the work. So there's been the workbook, which came out last December. Uh -huh. This one coming out at the end of November. Yeah. So it's been a lot, a lot to move obviously happened in the middle of all of that. It's so funny to live in a place where it's kind of the opposite than my life in the North East, at least had been in the winter. You hunker down, you don't go outside for several months. And now it's like yeah. in the summer, I barely go outside for several months. Yeah. Cause where'd you grow up again? Philadelphia. 
Yeah. And then yeah. I went to school in upstate New York and spent a lot of time in New York City. So upstate New York was by far the most horrific weather as far as I'm concerned. So that is one of the big reasons why I've gravitated and moved toward now the sunshine of the desert. <laughs> so what brought this most recent book on? What was there an impetus? It almost feels like there's um something in the collective about accountability and sovereignty over your reality. And I love it because in my own experience, it feels like it's what's made the biggest difference. And what I feel like I'm actually the most proud of is taking accountability and dropping defensiveness and doing things for myself. And, and as my therapist, I've said it many times, told me like, which you put me onto her, Vienna. When I texted you in a sad, sad hole, <laughs> I was like, I actually wanted you to help me. I was like, oh, do you know any, like, uh, I need a therapist? And you're like, let me help you out. And so, oh my God, she's literally just texting me right now, Vienna. That's I'm texting funny. her about us. seeing she her felt soon. Us. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. Um, thanks, universe. Um, but, uh, but it feels like there's, you know, something in the collective. And Vienna told me something really, really, really potent back in the day um, where she said, nobody holds the keys. And I was like, that's heavy. <laughs> But she's like, you don't have to do it alone. So what does that all mean? And why do you think that there's we're in this place as a collective where we're we're ready to do the work ourselves? I 100 percent agree, Danik. I think there's it's a kind of movement in the collective of realization. I think a lot of relationships are breaking down very outwardly uh, in the form of collective conflict, though. I think it's a natural progression just to speak from my own journey, which inspired the book itself. As we begin to heal, as we begin to become conscious of our patterns, I talked to you and I talked a lot about that um, in my first book, How to Do the Work. I think the natural intuitive place then that we focus our attention and or continue to struggle, even if we have increasing awareness and have, quote unquote, done the work on ourselves, if you will, our relationships, I feel like become the next kind of highlighted point. Um, so for me, it was very similar having created a lot of change in my own life and my own relationship with myself. I was still seeing much of actually the same patterns that I was seeing back when I worked as a couples therapist doing very similar to what Vienna now does. Um, I spent a lot of time working with couples in the treatment room, trying to inc increase communication and awareness and even sharing of our, you know, our past childhood experiences with partners and yet continue to see not only in the couples I was working with, but in my own life. Mm -hmm. continued patterns of disconnection, of dysfunctional behaviors, sometimes of outright conflict, and have lived, having lived the byproduct of that in terms of usually getting to the point in my very serial monogamous dating history from one relationship to the next, getting to the point where I felt so resentful, usually, to speak to your point about responsibility, did not take it myself, pointed the finger outward, imagined I was just picking the wrong partner in this mm -hmm. hypothetical ideal partner was out there in the future where none of this would be the issue. And I continue to find, um, you know, that I was playing and that's, I think, a hard shift to take, uh, looking personally at what role we're playing, how our childhoods very much are creating for many mm -hmm. of us, these dysfunctional cycles, though, to speak to your point, I think collectively we've gotten to our limits. There's a lot of resentment, a lot of conflict that's exploding outward. And also there is. <laughs> also, God. a lot of my hopeful side of this is a lot of awareness and a lot of people like myself, the beautiful conversations you have on this podcast um, of humans who are beginning to look at the role that they're playing, beginning to take sometimes very difficult responsibility for the role that they're playing and continuing 
to enact these generational cycles and and most importantly beginning to shift and to go back to what I believe is at the core of all of us at the core of my new book the kind of heart-based creature that we are able to actually get along with others compassionate for others and their suffering and we don't actually want to be at odds in the way that I think is just so universally devastatingly you know reflected quite globally at this point how is it then that our our childhood sort of puts us in this place like what is happening that makes us completely oblivious and unaware of our own patterns that happen when we're kids i think often you know we are so driven by that autopilot that i speak of often um we live outside of our own awareness much like i did right i'm not the problem i can't even see the role that I'm playing. Um, there's biological reasons for that. Our brain loves to to coast in that autopilot to give energy or to conserve energy so that we can focus our attention on the many different, you know, stimulation things, complexities that we have to navigate as a human. When we really dive into our relationship, I mean, at its core, whether or not we're talking about our relationship with ourselves as individuals or our relating to another person. That is so mapped on to what we learned in our childhood, what was modeled to us, how we learned to stay as safely connected as possible. And I think the large majority of us, at least those that are in our adult years, were really raised by a generation of individuals who mm -hmm. lacked information. I mean, even so much so that for a long time in the field, I often cite this because it is, is mind-blowing to me. I mean, the parenting advice that was so readily given up until the more recent past was very much of what I would call a behaviorist, um, focused on punishments, focused on rewards, right? We had reward charts, much like we're, we're animals, completely leaving out the emotional side of our human experience. And mm -hmm. so lacking information, um, those individuals, of course, being raised by even more past generations, they were ill-equipped. Um, they were ill-equipped, many to meet our physical needs, many more to meet our emotional needs. And now, of course, in the field, we understand that emotions are incredibly important. And yeah. again, that safety and the security or their lack thereof in those earliest environments, because we're so adaptive. And in childhood, we need these caregivers, whatever version yeah. of the caregivers were, were dealt. A lot of times this stuff can be a lot of words and not really like make sense. But if you could give us some examples of like which direction, like a couple directions that we go with our orientation or the way we act in relationships based on scenarios when we're kids, I think that might really resonate with people. Absolutely. Um, I think a really common one I've been thinking and doing a lot of content around is um, when as children, we have had to, for whatever reason, become parentified or we become the parent mm -hmm. of our parent. If we had a parent that was physically right not present, maybe this translated to having to be the caretaker of siblings if there were other siblings in the home, quite literally showing up in physical care and emotional care mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. our peers, for, for lack of a better word. Um, emotionally, if we had a parent who was incapacitated, maybe they were shut down in their own depression or like my mom, physically present, but emotionally so withdrawn mm -hmm. because she herself didn't have that emotional attunement to be able to be present to her own emotional world, let alone my emotional world. So in that adaptation, what many of us do is we enter into that role. We begin to be the caretaker, giving physical care of those around us, or we begin 
to give emotional care, so attuned to the wants and needs of whoever is around us at the same time suppressing what our wants and needs might be. And then we continue right in our relationships, even sometimes to be celebrated right? With this idea that it's it's positive to be selfless. I'm the caretaker. I'm mm-hmm. responsible for all of these people around us. And while that is our lived truth, um, that is not a kind of healthy way to interact with other people. Because if we're not tending to our wants or tending to our own needs, chances are they're not getting met. Um, we're overstepping our own boundaries. We're not meeting our basic needs. And more importantly, we're not caring for our physical body, which houses our nervous system. And I think and talk a lot about that um, because, again, these childhood roles oftentimes are the only way that we've learned to safely relate to another person. And if, again, we're not grounded in ourselves, meeting our physical needs, tending to our emotions, able to express them to another person, then we're not going to be able to be a safe space. Chances are we're not going to be who we truly are, right? We're just that role. We're the caretaker. We're the giver. We're the person, the pleaser. And we're going to be at the expense of the rest of us. Um, and we're going to continue. This is where we get stuck in cycles with particular partners. We continue then to fall into certain dynamics, much like, right? So we're a child in caretaking mode. Chances are we're then attracted or gravitating towards someone else who needs care in our adulthood. You gave an example, obviously, about you know, not being emotionally supported and not someone not there for you emotionally. You had to be there for them. So would you say that it actually could boil down to that very problem for everyone and the expression is goes in a couple of directions, like maybe you overcompensate and abandon yourself. Maybe you learn how to completely adapt by taking care of yourself and you don't take care of anybody. And so now you're the avoidant that can't, it doesn't have bandwidth for you because it only knows how to take care of itself because that's the only thing it could do to survive. So emotional needs, is that, could you call that the pure foundation of all these issues? I do think if we want to boil it down to with our emotional need being the safety and the security to be who we are, whoever that person is, whatever that emotional express and expression is, and to give and receive the support that we need in that moment. And again, like I was sharing earlier, I believe the large majority of us haven't had that safety and that security. So it really does then boil down to what is the habitual way. And I love beautifully, Danica, how you pointed out both sides of that spectrum, right? Either go into that role where I'm constantly giving care, or I might, and this is very much where I fell into, I might close myself off of mm-hmm. that which I need the most. And then we become really at odds, which what I can make a case is our kind of our core, our core childhood and adult emotional need is to be seen, valued, and accepted and ultimately love. That's what love is, in my opinion, the security to be in our self-expression, the security and safety to allow someone else to be in that self-expression and to be able to join together. And give the support, emotional support that we all need as humans. So when it comes down to it and we don't have that need met, we'll do whatever we've learned to habitually do to keep ourselves safe, often becoming even at odds what we even desperately want and need. I had a great childhood. My parents are great. They're still married. Like we had everything. Like there was no major drama. There, like there's really, you know, nothing to sort of point to. So for people listening that could say like, no, I had a great childhood. I'm trying to get in here because if somebody's listening, like everyone has it some way, somehow. Would you agree? Yes. 
some level of trauma. There are secure attached people. Not very many. I don't know if I've met one, but <laughs> I'm, not, um, I'm not either. <laughs> apparently there's a statistic for them. But, um, but how, cause I don't think it's that people don't want to fix things. It's that it's not that people don't want to heal. It's not that people are like, oh, I couldn't literally be any happier or any more joyful, but it's so hard to know where to go next. Cause you think to yourself and I'm super into this stuff. Like, no, I had a great childhood. And then all of a sudden you kind of just like keep having issues or you keep peeling away the layers or, you know, you look at a pattern. So like, how do you take the person that goes, no, I've had a great childhood, but could you be happier? Sure. Like, how do you, where do you start peeling the way away the layers? I would be very much speaking to a version of myself upwards until I entered my thirties, I would have professed a happy, healthy, close, connected family experience. And yeah. I think for, for more often than not, I mean, of course, some of us have the big thing, right. That, that had happened right. in, in our childhood though. Mm -hmm. I think more often than not, it's what didn't happen, especially when we're talking about that emotionally secure, safe container. Cause hypothetically, in addition to the the enormity of the task that parents have of keeping a being who's not themselves physically alive, um, I think this is the area where it's much more easy to say, oh, okay, yes, yeah, something happened. My, people weren't physically present for me, or I was being physically neglected or physically or sexually abused, right? There was that boundary crossing. Um, so in absence, I think, of having those moments, you know, of of the thing that the person that wasn't available, what is really important is to explore, right, how present and how safe and secure we felt to share our perspectives and our ideas. Something that I saw very commonly in my family is there wasn't that safety. We very much had this group think type mentality. I even would hear things and maybe listeners have heard things in their families like my last name, of course, is LaPera. LaPera's believe this, think that we don't think these sort of things, right? And again, what on the surface seems like just a s simple idea, and maybe in some ways you do share perspectives and beliefs, the reality of it is there's individuals in the family unit that might not actually think that way. So was there a, a, a pr adult present who was curious, who asked you what your perspective or ideas were, who were before that curious and able to create that separation? Because even very well-intentioned parents, who some of them very committed not to recreate their own childhood, they don't have, or at least they don't embody that separateness, that idea that I could have a child that looks very much like me, but thinks and believes and has a completely different perspective than myself. Also important, I think, that causes trauma in this area is parents not being able to understand their child's perspective, meaning from a different developmental age, very common, right? A kid comes home from school devastated about something that happened at lunch. The parent hears about it from their mature parent perspective, yeah. probably a little bit because they struggle emotionally to tolerate hearing their child upset in this way. It might activate their own feelings that are difficult for them to tolerate. They haven't learned from their own childhood experience how to navigate upsetting emotions. It might bring the parent back to a similar experience that they had at lunch in childhood. So from a very well-meaning, mature perspective, it's so common and easy for a parent to say, oh, it's okay, get over it, it'll be better tomorrow, you'll have friends next year, or some version that can be very minimizing for the child whose whole developmental world and emotional space is invalidated in that moment. Because that upset, especially when it's exclusion from peers as we're developing, 
is so devastating, is so painful. So I think that's another common area where emotions, maybe some of us come from families that emotions aren't even spoken about. They're swept under the rug. There might even be explosive fights that as soon as the fight is over, it's as if nothing happened. It's not discussed. There might be an emotional flatness outside of stress and worry. There was no emotional discussion or expression in my family at all. And even in moments of stress and worry, it wasn't described. It wasn't spoken. However, as children, I think this is another mismatch or lack of attunement that causes trauma. Children feel it. I remember I could feel when there was something usually medically or health related happening in my family. I would feel the stress, though in absence of it being spoken about, right? I didn't have any understanding of what was happening and more so I didn't have any support about what was happening. So again, I think what is very common is this idea that there are certain things that we shouldn't tell our children. They should only happen behind closed doors, right? There's a lot of stress or upset in the home, but none of it is being spoken about. And in reality, again, the child is sensing it. And the byproduct is the child is left alone to deal with their overwhelming emotions and their mind will begin to make sense of it. And unfortunately, if they're at a young developmental age from birth until about age seven, and our brain is in what is called an egocentric stage of development, any of these things I've described, any of the happenings, the way a childhood brain will make sense of it is that they are the cause. We are literally in an orbit. The world is in an orbit around us at that early developmental stage. So the parent who isn't physically present, the parent who isn't emotionally present, the parent who's invalidating our emotions, the parent who's feeling emotions and not talking about it, mm-hmm. all roads will typically lead back in the child's mind to, I caused mm-hmm. whatever's happening or whatever mm-hmm. is not happening. So again, I, I could continue on, but there's just so many small, sure. consistent things Right. Um, that happened to, you know, around our perspectives, around our emotions, even self-expression, how many times, how many of us were told not to dress in certain ways for whatever reason, not to be a certain way in public. Um, I remember a very common thing in my home because it was passed down through generations is what not to let the neighbors see, um, right? Things kind of stay in the home and don't like express yourself in this way. I was told a lot of messaging around the clothing I wore my preference for comfortable soccer shorts was not in alignment with the way my mom had, you know, kind of her sense of beauty and what she thought as a young girl I should be wearing. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of messaging again that we get in terms of our self-expression, our just natural way of being in the world, um, mm-hmm. you know, being uh, active, being emotive in public. Mm-hmm. Some of us get that look, right? Don't don't be like that in this space for whatever reason. Um, Again, another really common thing in terms of boundaries, I think that happens. Parents who are very concerned about perception, outward perception, might overstep children's boundaries. I did a video on this recently. I don't know if it's come out yet on TikTok, but um, the child who's told, go hug whomever, right? Because they'll get upset if you don't hug uncle, aunt, or whoever it is when really the child instinctually doesn't want to hug. Or me, I was a very shy child. Um, I didn't want to talk to anyone who wasn't my family or my close, you know, connections. I would literally hide behind my mom, um, being urged to go say hi to so and so, right? Pushed beyond our limits because, again, the parent is worried, very well intentionally, doesn't want to hurt someone's feelings, is worried about how they will appear as a parent, um, mm-hmm. if and when the child decides to honor their own boundaries and not to make physical contact or not to make verbal contact, whatever it is. So, again, very small moments, of course, not 
one-offs. I want to relieve all parents listening. This isn't the one moment you said that. This is when this consistently happens over time. Ultimately, the message is our ideas, our emotions, and our self is not worthy and we need to adapt in whatever direction. Right. And we don't feel seen in some way. And you know, it's sometimes not even, there's not even, um, sometimes whatever they're doing might be coming from a really good place. Like for instance, in my situation with my, my dad, which created a more anxious attachment style wound for me, my dad was gone all week, every week, and would only be there on the weekends. And that creates this inconsistency, which I was like, oh, why is he leaving? And now he's coming back. And how do I keep him here? And then we started racing at 10. And then every weekend he'd yell at me for whatever I was doing. And I love my dad. We have a great relationship now. And and we, we always really have, but like these are things that created it, uh, negative effects in my in my intimate relationships moving forward in my life. And so he was gone because he was working. Like He would come home, but I was in bed. Like that's how much he worked to be able to put food on the table. And like my parents were down to their last hundred dollars and they bought a picnic table when we moved, like they moved into their very first house together. I mean, they had no money and my dad built an amazing business from nothing, but it took a lot of time. So he's doing something really good, but it is read by my body as a child that has no no ability to discern between their gone work, play, whatever. And now that that is now an anxious attachment wound in me. And so, you know, then I get yelled at on the weekends and then I'm like, oh, well, if I want to keep dad around because now the wound's there, I'm like, I better kind of like keep showing up and like put up with it. And like, I'll show you dad, I can dig deeper and we can keep doing this, you know? And, um, and so it doesn't always come, it is not always a vindictive or mean or a heartless action. Absolutely not. And somewhat similar though, a little bit different, um, very well intentionally, my parents, um, coming from a very kind of post-depression era. My dad is now 86 years old. He was born in 37. A lot of my parents too have a similar story coming back from their honeymoon, dropping the last 50 cents into the toll. That's all they had. They had bread that they were eating you know, for sandwiches as they were driving back from Florida to Philadelphia because that was the only way that they could have a honeymoon. A lot of financial insecurity and a lot of messaging that I received throughout my life and in particular around employment and work and even the concept of it and what was the path toward a secure retirement and making sure that my financial needs were met. Um, a lot of the way, again, that my mom, mapping onto this a little bit, was able to love me um, in absence of emotionally was by making sure that I got into the good high school so that I could get into the good college, right? And giving me this more, setting me up to succeed financially. So now flash forward, um, I start to speak to my parents about wanting to, quote unquote, be in my own business or create my own business, even being a therapist. And I was met with a lot of worry, a lot of resistance, a lot of, are you sure you want to do that? And you don't want to work for someone else where life is more secure and the paycheck is more predictable. Um, so again, I think that's another area too, where very well-meaning parents, especially coming from their own financial insecurity begin to send sometimes direct messaging, sometimes indirect messaging to their children from a very well-intentioned space, wanting them to not suffer financially in the same ways to have yeah. financial security, but that can act absolutely not only impact the work we do, but certain aspects, you know, of ourselves. I think of young artistic kids and for a very long time now until we have, you know, the advent of social media and creation and all that can come in terms of opportunity. I mean, art was not a celebrated path 
Um, and in my opinion, right, that sort of self-expression, if that's not being fostered in a child, it's a whole aspect of their self that, again, for very well-intentioned meaning or you know, intent in and of itself is being suppressed because of the need for that financial security. Well, and let's just take a second to talk about there's so many different kinds of intelligence. Like we've been forced to think that the one that we go to school for is the only kind of intelligence and it's bullshit. Like you can have emotional intelligence, you can have artistic intelligence, you can have book intelligence, you can have like body intelligence, you can have, there's so many intelligence for nature. Like there's so many like ways that you can be intelligent and we're not all, all of them. We have, we're all, they're all in us, but there are some that we shine, shine more with. And so, you know, school does not do a good job of helping us understand that we're all gifted. Um, I could even take it a step further and say, not only does it not do a good job, it can be downright traumatizing. Um, and yeah. what immediately comes to mind for, for me is my partner, Lolly, um, who in school, you know, kind of based on her own wiring that we now have more different language for, really struggled, was not able, no matter what her parents did to get her the tutor, to, you know, demand she do her homework to help support her. Um, she very much struggled in school and not only was at a point of conflict and stress within the family home. I mean, she's shared with me harrowing stories of how some teachers had treated her in an outright traumatizing way when she continued to struggle, regardless of how much they mm -hmm. were offering support. And now again, with new language, you know, kind of understanding Lolly is an absolute, in my opinion, genius um, in so many ways that not only was there no room or space for it in school, she still carries that wounding, that kind of deep belief that there's an aspect of her that isn't good enough. Um, and the actual then trauma of being on the receiving end sometimes of explosive reactivity, heckling, shaming behaviors from the adults around her, which again, weren't necessarily trying to be hurtful. They too, I'm sure themselves on some level were feeling inadequate when who they were trying to support wasn't being supported. We're probably feeling challenged in their, you know, identity as a teacher and everything else and might even have been activating some of their own past experience. So she's someone who just comes immediately to mind. And I'm, I'm appreciating you, Danica, for bringing up school. We have this very one size fits all model um, that again, not only does it not create space for all of the different beautiful versions of intelligence, um, I meet more people like Lolly that actually are carrying really deep rooted trauma from all that came with their own school experience. You have a chapter in the book that talks about like how to feel like something is embodied, like embodying the name of the chapter. You probably know it offhand, exploring your embodied self. So I think it's a good time to talk about explaining what that means if you can, because like I have a lot of thoughts around the word embodied. Um, and then my thought is going into things like EMDR and modalities to heal these traumas that come from an experience. So please try and give us an, like your thoughts around what do you mean? Embodied very much just a word until you really experience it. So help us understand. I love that. Even your, your question embodied is just a word until we experience it. I mean, how, how wise and so much truth in that. So simply, if we want to, as I often do simplify the definition of embodied to be in our body in the physicality of our experience, which does include our emotional world. I mean, this was not only was inserting the body into my own 
equation of my humanity coming from very much a clinical system that prioritized the mind. Um, you know, that very much was based in a CBT based framework, this idea that thoughts create our emotional experiences, change our thoughts, change how we feel, change what we do in the world. Um, and very much being an intellectualizer myself, I like to think my way through problems. I lived most of my life completely disconnected from my body and had no reason to believe that there was anything problematic about right. doing that. Um, right. Again, I think it's very celebrated. I do think even going down this kind of topic of self-awareness, self-analyzing, being a clinical psychologist, being in a room teaching people how to increase their awareness, I think, of course, that's valuable up until a certain extent. I will always break down a process of changing into two steps. The first step be being becoming conscious, right? Kind of becoming aware, having these insightful moments, though the reason why I saw myself and many other people stuck is that only goes so far. We have to at some point build that bridge from utilizing that insight, right? And even some of us continue to use this overanalyzing, over self-aware way of thinking about ourselves into endless infinity as actual a protection against everything that's alive within our body. So for me, discovering the importance of the body that houses the nervous system, that just as much as our brain is sending very powerful messages down to our body, our brain is also assessing all of the very powerful messages that our body is sending. You can think your way out of it. You can talk your way out of it. You can use a lot of big words. You can tell yourself a lot of big words yes. and and you don't, you can just sort of escape through intelligence. Yes. You agree with and, that? Uh, yeah. And I think a lot of people continue to utilize that over intellectualization as a, as a protection um, from because when we do begin to shift focus and discover, rediscover that we are living in a physical existence, and more so when we truly understand that emotions are physiological experiences, they're biomarkers, they're assessing, they're giving us information, I should say, around how we're experiencing our environment. I think a lot of people even believe that feelings and emotions right live solely in our mind. They're a mental construction. And in reality, they're not. Um, our mind at all times is taking in all of the sensory information that our body is registering often outside of our awareness yeah. to mm -hmm. actually then impact the thoughts that we're having, right? So just using myself as an example, all I want is peace and calm. I want this peaceful day. Yet meanwhile, my body is tense. My muscles are tense. My breath is really quick. My heart rate is racing because I'm carrying stress for me from a lifetime, from my stressful childhood environment that I didn't have the right tools to help myself release. So in that moment of seemingly peace or what my intention was to hopefully have a peaceful moment, my mind begins to race with stressful thoughts. What I didn't do, this argument I had this morning, what could happen tomorrow. All of the while, little did I know that my brain was just assessing the messages my body was giving it. Because the reality of it is, we're not going to find a moment of peaceful stillness if our body is in a stress response because actually peaceful being still is probably the last thing physiologically that our body wants to be doing when it believes there's a threat at hand. So for me, it was a big mind opener, um, really understanding again that I have a body, beginning to live in my body, beginning to attune to all of the physiological sensations, which then brings us to the reality of how uncomfortable it is. And the yeah, reason why yeah. so many of this then continue to I was going to ask, like, why do you want to embody anything? Right. Like, why? Like, 
I like to get like really, really, really down to the root of things. And so bodied. Okay, great. I want to embody the, okay, put it in my, why do I want to put it in my body? What's the point? Because also the next thought, which you're just about to go into, and I'm excited to hear what you have to say is that if we're going to embody the shit that's happened to us, a lot of times we're going to have to go through the shit, right? Like if you're going to have to feel the feelings of being a little kid that no one paid attention to, or didn't give a shit what they had to say, or wasn't important or wasn't beautiful or wasn't smart, like you're going to have to cry. Like you're going to have to cry because that was a reality for you. So explain what the role of embodying anything even is. I want to apply this um, to the context of relationship because uh, I think it's this is where it becomes most prominent. To to be connected is to to be not only in our self expression but to allow another to attune to us energetically and emotionally. So again, just using myself as an example, one of the major complaints I had for every past relationship was ultimately I get to the point in the relationship where I don't feel emotionally connected to you. I would voice that complaint. Of course, not taking responsibility. I assumed, well, there's something wrong with you emotionally. Clearly, it's not me. You're not able to give me what I need emotionally. Onward, I would go to seek my next relationship, this ideal partner who would just get me, right? Who just would know. Little did I know, and again, bringing this full circle, that until I began to look at the role I was playing, which was actually keeping myself so emotionally distant from myself, because remember, I didn't have that attunement in childhood. So my safest space was to distract or to dissociate. I call it living in my spaceship. I began to kind of hover above, intellectualize, think my way. I was very gifted academically. So to speak to your point, right, I kind of logicked my way through life. And the same applied in my relationships. So unbeknownst to me, the reality of it, why I wasn't feeling emotionally connected and why many of us feel alone in a crowded room. We're with partners and we feel a sense of emptiness still. We aren't actually being ourselves, which include our emotions. I was so far away, protected in my spaceship, that the reason why I wasn't able to allow myself to be connected to and to connect with another person was because I wasn't connected to myself. So the reason to be in our own bodies is because that's a whole part of our experience, emotionally sharing ourselves, um, expressing ourselves is an aspect of our actual being. And it's actually the place in which we are able to connect with another. Because again, this is another area I think where often in relationships, we go down the over-intellectualizing path, sometimes to our incredible frustration, is when we try to right, share a feeling with a partner, and we sometimes for very well-meaning intentions hear how we should solve the problem, what they would do, their perspective. When in reality, what we really want at our core, going back to what you were beautifully citing, we just want to be seen in whatever it is that we're experiencing. We just want someone to sit next to us in our suffering of that moment and feel less alone. Though I think that's another area where we shift into that left brain. We have very well-meaning partners that can't tolerate meeting us. Maybe they're not even emotionally connected to themselves to be able to attune to how we're feeling. So then we hear what they would do or not to worry about it or all the things that they are trying to help us. Though in reality, I do believe the basis of, I mean, I make a case for all relationships in general is to be in that pure grounded state, allowing beingness, me to be who I am, 
me creating the safety and the security and the curiosity to explore who you are and to be able to join together in those moments of pain, not to solve the problems, not to think them away, not to do all those habitual things that many of us have learned to do to keep ourselves safe. Yeah, because some, some, many times, like, we just want to be heard, right? We don't, we come home with the problem and it's not, look, I'm so guilty of this. Like, what's the problem? I'll fix it. Like, okay, well, there's it. What about this? And and part of my way of empathizing was to understand. And so, you know, but people don't always want you to help them solve it because maybe there's not really, maybe it just takes time. Maybe you're not the one to solve it. You're just the one to love them no matter what like love them with their experience. And it's not like, oh, I didn't marry my mom, right? Or I didn't marry my dad. I married someone that's going to hug me when I'm fucking down, you know, instead of trying to make everything better. Like being better is being seen and met emotionally. I can just complicate this journey a bit further. Um, Again, using myself as a a prime example, even though at our core, we need that. Right. I just want to be seen in my suffering. I just want to be supported, which is oftentimes just a beautiful listening ear or that emotional attunement. If we didn't have that, if that wasn't our consistent experience in childhood, there's going to be a difficulty, a discomfort. I still continue to find myself, even though I have partners who are ready and able and available emotionally to support me in any given moment, there's such first and foremost a vulnerability in myself, even expressing that I have an emotional need that sometimes I won't say it. I'll just do backhanded, passive aggressive comments. I wish you would just support me a little more. But not even saying that I needed support in in the moment. Um, And or I'll kind of put up, as I say, like daggers. I have my hand straight forward with daggers and I'll be the, the person that no one really wants to be around at all. And then hold you responsible for not sitting next to me and soothing me in that moment. Yet I've made it so incredibly difficult because again we're at odds with even ourselves even our corest of need to be seen in all of our suffering in any given moment if someone wasn't attuned to us in childhood and allowing that to feel safe simply familiar repeated that experience enough that we could even work against ourselves self sabotage right go running away when really we want to go running towards someone so do you believe abraham hicks you ever listen to some Abraham Hicks stuff? It's been a while, but I've listened to it re- like all the time for a while. Um, that anybody could be your sort of point of reference for joy and happiness. Like, like if you kind of heal everything, essentially, it's like, oh, I could just use you as my, you're just, you're just sunshine. And we're just like, great, let's have a great conversation and let's have some fun. And like, you just sort of look at the positives. I mean, do you believe that's true? And the thoughts that I'm having are sort of around like when we're in a relationship and we sort of blame them and not ourselves, or let's say we don't feel like we're emotionally met. We don't feel like, oh, they just don't like understand me or get me. Is it that, um, is it that you've matched up with someone to show you who you are because they're the same and they'll fade away? Or is it because you can't feel what they're doing to give you love because you're not doing it for yourself. So you actually don't have the receptor for it yet. You're like, the synopsis is not there. And then when you connect it, you're going like, oh, I can feel that now. Like we can connect the circuitry to what it means to be there for myself. Now I can feel you here for me. Or is it that we're actually meeting someone like us to show us that we're not connected. And then when we get connected, 
we go, oh, you're not connected. Yeah, bye. Um, I'm sure it's not that black and white, but I, yeah, no, I, I go through my head. I, like, I love I love this question. I love thinking um, in terms of how I would answer this. So I think healing, let me start by maybe defining that in my perspective and opinion, at least healing is a grounded state of presence, right? Not driven by survival mode, not kind of recycling or cycling through all those habitual ways that we've learned to feel safe that aren't us, right? Relaxing into our pure state of grounded presence or beingness. So that is how I would define healing and then leading that into when we're in that place, right? We can remove those or expand those blinders a bit to then become really present to more, if not all of which, I don't know if I make a case that we can tend to everything in any given moment. I mean, we do have a filtering, um, the Uh reticular activating system part of our brain because there's just too much stimulation in any moment, too much that maybe someone, you know, is expressing or not expressing. So we, though, that become more able to see then what is present. And when we're present then, I think then to answer kind of the specifics of this question, we can begin to notice, you know, ways people are showing up for us that might have we might have been blind to in a given moment. We can begin to notice someone else's joyful sunshine or the way they impact us in a way that is growing us. And at the same time, we can begin to notice ways and people impact us, right? Where they're becoming a mirror to deeper things that we haven't healed and even difficult aspects of an experience with some person. We're more connected to that internal, that intuition, that sensor, that kind of evaluator than depending on who is there, right? We can become more conscious in who and how we want to create a relationship. So I can actually just, again, use a quick personal example. The way I was loved was through these gestures of care. My mom, who was physically present, right, was able to provide very routine. Um, we were a very routine household. We had breakfast at the same time. There was a certain amount of foods that were, you know, breakfast appropriate. The same with dinner. Dinner happened at the same time every night. Um, I believe that was my family's manifestation of one way we can control all of the unpredictability and health and anxiety that came along with it was to be really regimented. So one of the things I grew to expect and even to identify and believe to be a gesture of love was having my physical needs cared for, was having dinner on the table when I got home, was having my laundry done, the things that my mom was able to do. Flash forward in time, I meet Lolly. Lolly comes from a completely different childhood experience. They were pretty much every person for themselves in the household. They had dinner at different times, ate different things. There was no sense of kind of that given care in that way. I would come home from work, usually later than she, because I had sessions until the evening, so she would be home. I would walk through the door with this expectation of being loved in this one particular way. And when the dishes weren't done, when the laundry wasn't folded, when dinner wasn't on the table, because that didn't even occur to Lolly. Meanwhile, she was waiting to connect with me to be curious, to ask me about my day, to have a moment of emotional connection. When I didn't see or have that expectation met for what I was defining was love, all based in my childhood. I actually did turn a blind, not only turn a blind eye to what she was offering me, I actually would come become outright argumentative, combative. Yeah. I would say, is something wrong? No, nothing's wrong. The, the house is dirty, but nothing's wrong. Completely. I'm a little hungry. Out. You know, I've been gone all day. Uh, but- yeah. So I guess I'll just order dinner, you know, for myself. It's fun, passive aggressive right. daggers. Right. So just prime example of that kind of blindedness. Um, I wasn't in my own grounded presence. It felt threatening to me when the person that I love dearly isn't caring for me. I went into my survival mode, which is being passive aggressive, being explosive, 
whatever it was. Um, meanwhile, I missed out on everything that was actually there. So again, I think as we heal, heal doesn't mean an absence of meeting negative people, you know, having challenging moments, navigating life with someone who's different. Being healed means being grounded in presence while all of that is happening. And I think the byproduct of that is we become much more intentional and conscious about the relationships that we invest our time and energy toward. The safe and secure partnership no longer feels threatening, doesn't activate all of these underlying patterns. And we can actually begin to then co-create a life with someone who is different, not just the familiar pattern that we've learned and repeated many of us for the majority of our relationships. We can't know any different is all we knew. And so that it's like your program, this is, you know, what makes me think we're a simulation. <laughs> like you just have the program and you're like, wait, I, you know, a new one comes in. You're like, does not compute. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, um, so I'm kind of fascinated by relationships and like, they've been, it's been a journey for me. And um, what's the point of them? I know it's a bit of a broad question, but I want to see where you take it. I love this. Um, again, we are social creatures. So. And I mean intimate. I mean like partnerships, like yeah. um, intimate relationships. Okay. Thank you for clarifying because I would not make like friendship. A broad or- case that we need other people. We do not exist in a vacuum. We not only need kind of the give and take of resources and energetic resources, the support. Um, what is the point of romantic partnerships? That's a yep. very interesting question because I've actually been thinking and speaking a lot about and exploring the possibility of whether or not one's needs can get met outside of romantic partners. I think, you know, a very common thing I'm hearing a lot in the collective is, right, I'm I'm going to be alone. I'm going to be single. I'm going to just cultivate my core friendships. And so I've been giving a lot of consideration to can that and will that translate to a a fulfilling life? Um, And I think ultimately my answer is yes. I think we need just connection itself, whether or not it's with a romantic partner or a more platonic friend, a core community or whatever it is. But I think if you want me to get specific, um, what is the point of romantic partnerships? I think that there's a certain um, vulnerability, especially in oftentimes, but again, I could make a case that this isn't the case as much as I'm going to say it is, about the physicality that often comes with romantic partnerships um, and the depth of vulnerability that some of us share emotionally in those partnerships. But again, as soon as I say that, my mind goes, well, wait a minute. There are people who are you know, more on the asexual end of the spectrum and don't have physicality and even their romantic partnerships. So I'm not sure, I guess might be my final answer if, if there is okay. a different point of Philosoph- a romantic- Philosophize about it. Part, yeah, I don't know. I think that relationships, and again, as we become more attuned to ourselves, I think we can create incredibly fulfilling relationships with people that exist outside of a traditional romantic kind of defined partnership. I think that, like I said, I think culture itself is beginning to expand their ideas of what we thought was the one way of, you know, being. We'll, we'll in- talk about that because you're, you, 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 there's three of you, right? Yes. You're in a thruple, which is yes. a polyamorous thruple, which I want to talk to about next. But first, if we're philosophizing about what's the point of a romantic relationship or an intimate relationship with someone, it's that we can't see ourselves. We can learn a lot from the stuff around us. We can learn a lot in work, let's say with our family, even like we can get triggered and have these things happen. 
But like, if we're really going to get through a lot of really deep stuff, we've got to really, really care and really be vulnerable to how we're going to be viewed, chosen, if we're going to be chosen. And like, we'll be like, our friends will love, love us no matter what. Our family will love us no matter what. But like someone might not ever be around again if it doesn't work out. Like if you're together with somebody and you break up, you might never see them again or talk to them again ever in your life. They're not going to love you no matter what. They're going to move on. So we've got a lot on the line for our ego, for our emotional body, for our how we, you know, what this says about us. And so it brings it all really up to the surface. And so I think I think they're to 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 show us us on the deepest level. I I do too. And <clears throat> I can make an argument that I believe that friendships can be that as well. I think a lot of us do subscribe to longevity or tenure based, right? Well, they were my friends. They are just going to be there no matter what. I I am hopeful and I speak often about authentic friendships. Um, and learning how to have the same hard conversations, how to be the same mirror and offer that version of love. Love isn't just sticking by and right saying or placating. Love sometimes even in a friendship is being and holding that mirror up uh, to those around us. And I then speak of the byproduct of some friendships might be to separate and to grieve. And it might not be a healthy thing mm-hmm. just because you've been friends since you're three or since high school. Mm-hmm. To continue to keep and invest in that friendship. I do believe, though, however, that a lot of us have been operating. Same thing with family. Um, I don't know if we spoke about this, though. Several years ago, I made the choice to disconnect and to create. It ended up being somewhere around 18 months of actual separation from my family, being very much indoctrinated otherwise. Mm-hmm. Family is everything. Might as well have been a plaque on my mantle growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, yet so again, I think some of us carry this idea that their family, we just have to be there for them. And mm-hmm. I have lived the experience of gaining not only individually so much benefit of creating what to me wouldn't have been a consideration of, you know, a past self of, oh my God, separate from my family. How how could I ever? Though not only had it did was that so instrumental in my own rebuilding of my relationship with myself, it actually drastically allowed my family to break some of these generational habits and to create much more sustainable, healthy, authentic dynamics on the other side of it. Um, so again, I could make a case that as we become more authentic and connected to ourselves, and understand that sometimes that means holding a very un- uncomfortable and difficult mirror up to another person, mm-hmm. um, that I do think that some we can unlearn some of these reasons why we just stay in relationships that maybe aren't in alignment or aren't the healthiest. And I think then on the other side of that is we become maybe more expansive into different types of relationships where we can gain true authentic support, true companionship, um, whether or not it's for our full self. I think, you know, sometimes having relationships based in certain interests where we're able to self-express certain aspects of our personality or our self-expression is not only healthy, I think it's necessary. And again, I believe it is the future direction that a lot of us, and I think humanity, I think too about, you know, back in time, we weren't raised in solo households, right? Closed off. We were very much a village-driven, community-driven collective experience is humanity. And I think in a lot of ways, 
So we're not going into a new direction, I should say, in my opinion, we're returning to our roots in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's to maybe expand now on relationships and sort of how they've evolved. And there's by all means been such a growth in what a relationship could be. Um, we know what it has been, but what could it be? What could it look like? And, you know, I kind of asked like, what is a relationship for? Because, and maybe like, what is it not for? And then go, how does it look moving forward? Because polyamory is a much more common thing now. Um, and just open relationships. There's a conversation like, look, I'm not sure what I believe. Um, I, I'm not sure what I believe is, is the, I don't think there is a best way. I think there's someone that can make all of them work. Like, you know, there's someone that there's every, there's, 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 um, anomalies all over the place. And I think that even some of those anomalies were not normally talked about or accepted, but I think they're totally like, they can work. I'm not sure. I think there's still a clumping of what probably works best generally, but, um, but what are your thoughts around that? Because again, it's, uh, we're living in a new landscape and I feel like we're writing, we're writing a new book on, or throwing a books away on what it is. I want to start with what it's not. I don't believe any type of relationship, romantic, platonic, family, is is based on a us and or us requiring another directly or indirectly to play or to fit into a specific box, to play a specific role, to meet a specific need. What I do believe, and answering really globally, that a relationship is for is to create that safe and secure container for us to, for some of us to begin to even explore who we truly are and how we want to express in the world and give and receive support and everything in between. Um, though also then to create that safety and that security to allow for individual self-expression, which then I think bleeds beautifully into, then that allows, right? If I'm committed <clears throat> as I continued on my journey. I kind of hit that low. I didn't know kind of what was wrong. I began to explore my childhood, saw all these roles. I was playing every which way, disconnected from my emotions. I remained. My number one commitment I made to myself was to, again, create a conscious life experience that included me, my physical needs, my emotional needs, that included me being curious about my self-expression and creating the space for me to be that person in the world and remaining at the same time committed to the partnership I was in at that time was with Lolly. Um, we entered in, attracted to each other very much for our old habitual dynamics in conflict, as I was sharing earlier, around a lot of our habitual old dynamics. Though both of us, you know, coming to this awakening, this awareness, all of this information on around the same time, gratefully, and us both being as individuals committed to ourselves and our own individual self-expression on this journey of being human and committed to creating the safe space for the other. So flash forward several years in time of us remaining committed, exploring all the different ways that that met, um, living and embodying all the different changes to our dynamics where I no longer required her right to love me in this specific way. We were no longer just enacting all of these habitual ways we created safety. In a lot of ways, I was discovering um, who I was and learning how to be vulnerable and to show her those aspects of myself and, of course, then receiving from her that same self-expression. And so with that commitment of, again, what our definition, what my is, what a relationship is, that safe space to join together and, and continue along the way to check in and make sure that we're still aligned 
with mm-hmm. what we want our future to look like as individuals. Again, I think this is another place where we're not sure. We yeah. don't want to tell someone what it is that we want, how we want our future to look. If it means engaging in the legal partnership of marriage, if we want kids, where we want to live geographically. I mean, these are a lot of conversations that we either don't know about ourselves because we've deferred to other people. We might know, but we're afraid to share um, anywhere along the journey, developing the relationship well into the relationship out of concern of what if this person I've now invested in or I'm interested in says they want something different. Right. Um, and so again, we continue to keep all of this below the surface. We don't share it. So committed to checking in and making sure that we were in alignment uh, in terms of even moving from the East Coast to the West Coast, that we were both wanting that. And again, being open to the possibility that I might want something you know, that might impact where we live, what we do, and the state of our relationship. Though thankfully, there was continued alignment along the way. And down the line, we ended up, um, both of us, uh, developing feelings and hearing feelings back for an individual named Jenna, who's still, who's now our third partner, um, who then having open conversations where things that were beneath the surface not being spoken about, again, applying all of this to the conversation, because not, none of the three of us had had this type of relationship experience before. Um, I don't think we were willing to allow in the reality that what we were feeling below the surface was romantic interest, right? Especially Lolly and I were in a committed. We were married at that time. We're in a committed, what we thought was going to be monogamous relationship. And now kind of we're getting this internal interest in this third person. Um, so I share about it in the book because there was several months where so much of this was below the surface. Again, just to use the language of the book where we weren't really attuning to what it was that our heart was wanting that was translating into a, a lot of conflict and a lot of tension in the relationship. Now, of course, I share that to say that, you know, listeners, I don't think it always translates to expanding your relationship in this new direction, though I think there are so many moments, Danica, where we have these things that we want to say, that we want to get out of our chest, that we want to express, and we don't for whatever right. reason in our relationship. So the three of us very much, again, talking about the embodiment work, weren't weren't listening, weren't attuning weren't communicating until, of course, one morning. Um, Jenna actually is the one, and I'm so grateful for her to so bravely address it, speak it, um, bring it out into the light, kind of defining at least her awareness of what was going on for her, sharing that, you know, to both of us separately, shared that there were romantic feelings and that she completely understands that has no idea how we are taking this information and what we would want to do with it. Um, we were working together at the time. She's very much an integral part of the holistic psychologist and the membership, the self-healer circle. So above all, she communicated her commitment to continuing to work together, which would, of course, mean boundaries and everything that would move forward if we you know, declined or weren't interested in what it was that she was wanting to pursue. And again, separately together, Lolly and I both took time to explore within ourselves and came together and both committed. It was something that individually was of interest. And I was able to share that with her and receive that she too was feeling the same, wanting not only myself to live in my own self-expression or full expression, wanting that for her. Um, we very much decided to to try to walk forward into what was very, I mean, the word throuple, I giggle now when people say it because no idea that was a word how to Google it actually. Cause you know, who doesn't go online to make sure something is valid. I'm like three person relationship. Pink. What, what is that? Um, was met at that time with one or two. I think there was only like two people on social media that were being out about this kind of version of a relationship. Cause we were very clear. We weren't necessarily 
opening up a relationship, I think is again, some people's path in terms of a more poly or an open relationship. We were very much wanting to see if as a core unit, we could cohabitating, invite Not a third. Like, oh, you're a third. And we like see you sometimes or like whatever, but like truly all like all of it person relationship yes. at all times. Yes. I mean, we were living very close to each other in Venice Beach at the time because we worked together and we're very much in the building stage of the business. We spent the large majority of our time together and we knew we were getting ready to move here to Arizona. So it ended up being, yes, a full immersive experience. But the commitment first was this isn't like a separation. Like we are interested to seeing if as a three person unit, this could work. And it was very much walking into the unknown, uh, us each as individuals staying committed. Two seems to hard. Three ourselves. seems really hard. It's 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 a journey. I mean, talk about a mirror, right? I have now, yeah, right? More mirrors. I have two mirrors. Um, I have two dynamics, but this brings me to, again, this idea of kind of putting people in a box, right? I have two separate relationships with each of them in different ways. There's different ways Lolly and I connect. There's different ways Jen and I connect. We have a synergy when it's the three of us together. Um, and again, I've allowed myself that opportunity. Historically, though, having been, this is what romantic partner is, right? And kind right. of boxing. And I think we right. do that too with friends. Like I was sharing earlier, right? This is my idea of what a friend is. Yeah. But in reality, we could have a friend that we connect with very emotionally, maybe kind of like we were talking about earlier, giving us that really fulfilling experience. We could have a friend that we like one interest and we go do that one thing together. We could have a friend that we just like to have a, a good time and whatever it is, we could have different definitions when so many of us box ourselves in. So saying that to say like it's been you such can solve a problem now someone has dinner on the table because that's their love language and now there you go problem solved i will say jenna is quite good around the household One of the there you go it's a, it's a like, jigsaw oh, puzzle this actually works out very nice lolly doesn't have to do something as unnatural to her i get my need for the dishes done met everyone wins <laughs> so okay if you could like thank you for sharing and for sharing initially and sharing right now um so if you could just sort of close out with, you know, the title being how to be the love you seek, like what, based on your experience, can people expect to feel if they become the love that they seek and what will be their reality after that? Love this question. I think the first thing that we can expect to feel is a, for many of us, new experience of a calm, grounded presence and connection. So many of us even associate relationships with high stress, right? These high drama moments, this emotional roller coaster where it's pure passion, we call it. And then we fight and then we have this amazing makeup sex, right? In reality, a safe and secure connection is calm. It's grounded. Though mm -hmm. that's not to say that there aren't moments of disagreement, differing opinion, differing needs, differing resource states, right? And conflict even at mm -hmm. times. So However, when those differences occur, there's an ability to remain calm and curious mm. and or to separate if we can't create calm in the given moment, though then there's a commitment to repairing or returning and understanding maybe someone else's reaction that we couldn't understand in the moment or exploring, again, the deeper needs. It can really be, I used to describe or use this visual and very much, I didn't really have to do much when I was working with clients, couples, they would usually be sitting on the couch right in front of me next to each other, though when in conflict, right, it was they would turn against each other and combat and there was a winner and a loser or someone's needs would trump another's. And I really like to use the visual of actually sitting calmly next to each other on that couch, right? The issue, the disagreement, 
whatever it is, is at hand in front of us both. And from that calm, grounded presence, we can then explore, navigate the differences, negotiate, right? Times when I might have more energetic resources and I might be the one who's playing the supportive role, knowing that somewhere down the line, those roles will switch. Simply like I was sharing in terms of Lolly and I, making sure that we're looking toward the same future that works for both of us and we can hear each other and create, again, that safety and the security where it doesn't just matter. I'm not the only one who matters. I can actually allow someone who's different to matter that I care about and I can be in that grounded state of, again, to bring the title back in, that heart-based, I do believe. Love is the is the energy or the emotion of our heart. I think when we naturally reconnect with our heart, we open up the possibility to be in these collaborative as opposed to more conflictual relationships, whatever relationship that is. Right. That's beautiful. And, you know, the mirror for ourselves is the mirror for other we show to others. So when we love ourselves, no matter what, we love someone else, no matter what. When we have patience for ourselves and the mistakes we make, we have patience for the mistakes someone else makes. And, you know, when we want to figure ourselves out, we want to figure them out. Like it's all the mirror. Oh my God, it's everywhere. Wow. Well, thanks again for coming back on and um, for also taking the time to write these books and help people along in their journey more than ever people want this information. And I am so grateful for it. I mean, people want therapists now people are like, you know, they don't even think it's weird. Like, you know, I remember asking my parents a while back, years back, I'm like, you guys ever think about having a therapist? And my mom was like, no, it's like, I'm not a sociopath or, uh, you know, so it's becoming more normal and, um, and it's because of people like you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Danica. I mean, thank you for Mm -hmm. the conversations really that you host within your community. Um, I think that we're all doing a part to, you know, embody that collective shift, which I could not agree more. We're all looking for help for more self-understanding and for more ways to join together. So it's, it's been truly an honor. And of course, thank you all for listening. Thanks everybody for listening to the Pretty Intense podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please click on the subscribe button.